Registration is now open for ACRM 2021. Registering for our virtual annual conference gives you access to the content for over six months. That's over 400 hours of CME CEUs. Go to acerum.org register to check out the growing online program and see all of our great registration options. Welcome to the April 2021 edition of RehabCast from the Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. I'm your host, Dr. Ford Vox of the Shepherd Center here in Atlanta, Georgia. So Atlanta is now the seventh largest media market in the nation, according to the 2021 Nielsen ranking skyrocketing three spots up the list, even above Washington, D.C. Now I'm just reporting the facts And I'll leave it to our listeners to judge whether our podcast played any role in that. In all seriousness, this month's rehab cast features a couple of rehab luminaries. Dr. Linda Ehrlich-Jones of the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab helps us delve into the highs and lows of exoskeleton technology as it stands today for use by the spinal cord injury population. Then we're going to check in with John White of Moss Rehab and his work with a large team of brain injury research stalwarts on developing the brain injury functional outcome measure. What is the BIFOM? Why do we need it? When will it be ready for use? And how does Dr. White envision us using it? Keep listening. Dr. Ellie Jones, thanks for joining us today on the RehabCast. Thank you for having me. Now, the paper that you've come to discuss with us today, uh, and we're going to talk about some of the nature of the other work that you've done as well to start out with, but uh, to highlight for our audience, it is uh, Clinician Perceptions of Robotic Exoskeletons for Locomotor Training After Spinal Cord Injury. This is a qualitative study uh, inviting uh, therapists, uh, clinicians uh, primarily, who are working with patients with exoskeletons to talk about the pros and cons in frank terms and uh, try to get some uh, some trends and analysis about uh, how this new technology is incorporating into the rehabilitation space and what we can perhaps do uh, better uh, with it uh, and uh, where we might need to temper expectations and so forth, maybe provide some good feedback uh, for the exoskeleton industry, too, I would expect uh, also. Um, so, Dr. Uh, Ehrlich-Jones, uh, I, I tell us a little bit about the, the nature of the work that you do in, in outcomes research and, uh, and some of the, the things that you focused on in the past. So a lot of the research that I do um, focuses on what we call behavioral interventions, so helping people to change their behavior, uh, doing some coaching, um, helping people through a mechanism called motivational interviewing to help them to actually figure out what change they want to make and what goals they want to make. Um, In addition, though, we've Mm -hmm. been doing a bit of qualitative work, uh, which is really important in in terms of helping you to get to that point to create an intervention, getting the the input from the stakeholders as to what is of most importance. Um, And Mm -hmm. uh, we do a lot of different types of research. Uh, I work with a lot of different um, investigators, uh, work a lot with Alan Heineman, who works with me at the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab, but also with other physical therapists, with other physicians. Uh, Again, just trying to focus on what is the best way to help people to improve their outcomes um, for the future. And so what is the relationship between outcomes then and this study of uh, of exoskeletons and, and their use? So this particular study was really trying to get some background as to 
what were the thoughts from, um, actually, we had three groups. We had the clinicians, we had people who actually used robotic exoskeletons, and those who had spinal cord injury but had mm -hmm. never used a robotic exoskeleton. So we were trying to get uh, perspectives from those three groups as to what were the benefits, what were the uh things that worked not didn't go so well. Um, and I think it was really helpful to learn from the individuals who are involved to get that sense of what we would want to do in ter terms of future research uh, using that kind of uh, technology. Now, it was kind of a, a convenient sample of, of who's available for you guys to um, uh, more easily directly explore both uh, uh, user-wise and clinician-wise uh, in this, and probably a, a set number, therefore, of technologies that, that folks were working with. What are the were the main exoskeletons that are reflected in, in this study? So there were three uh, main types of exoskeleton that the clinicians worked with, um, the brand name Exo, mm -hmm. um, Indigo, and Rewalk. And in particular, we were looking for clinicians who had experience and in particular had been certified by these different companies um, to be able to work with patients using this kind of technology. Uh, so we wanted people who hadn't just, you know, Learned, learned about it from a book that they actually mm -hmm. had used the equipment and felt competent in using that equipment and having enough experience to be able to tell us about what they thought about the equipment. And I suppose the challenge in a qualitative study like this is, is trying to somewhat make it as quantitative as it is as it can be for qualitative to look for those trend lines and so forth um, uh, to kind of group together impressions and, the, and that type of thing. Uh, in the first place, though, I mean, what the, the key... Uh, uh, value of this type of study, and maybe this study in particular, what is it you're hoping uh, that it's going to contribute to the dialogue of, uh, and use of exoskeletons? Well, I think what was really helpful for me, I, I didn't have experience with robotic exoskeletons. So to be able to learn from the, uh, the staff that uses this equipment, um, actually the pros and the cons. Um, normally you would think, wow, this is a great technology. Everybody should be doing it. And actually, there are pros and cons to it. And to be able to then make a, an informed decision about what you would do in terms of encouraging uh, people with disabilities to use this, um, you would want to know both mm -hmm. sides. And so I think that was really eye-opening to me is to learn that it's not an, a mechanism for everybody who has a spinal cord injury. It's not a mechanism that every therapist um, would want to do, or, or is it a mechanism that people should be use, utilizing in their own home? So I think that there was a lot of information, certainly that I gained from doing this study, um, to help me um, learn more about what it is that we would need to do in terms of helping patients make those decisions. I suppose some interesting parallels with kind of the, the expense and bother perhaps of, of exoskeletons and uh, what we see perhaps in some other fields of medicine with more elective procedures and various implants and so forth, uh, including things for you know tremors or cochlear implants and so forth, and like what, what you might expect versus what you might get uh, matching up those uh, kind of uh, consumer or uh, patient uh, uh, imaginings with perhaps the marketing that's out there as well, you know, what, what looks potentially fantastic about it and, and really the, the reality. There seems to be a lot of that in this study reflecting that there is a, a conflict perhaps a little bit between the, the reality and the image. Exactly. And um, I think that's one of the, the issues that the clinicians really struggled with is that, 
you know, patients might see someone else using this robot and saying, wow, this is a great thing to do and might not be appropriate for that person, not be be helpful for that person may actually um, be something that might be unsafe for that person. So it's, um, I think that was one of the things that the clinicians struggled with a lot in terms of the expectations that patients have about this equipment and what really would be a benefit to them. It's almost an interesting philosophical problem that for the rehab field, at least when it comes to spinal cord injury medicine and uh, maybe increasingly maybe brain injury as well, that some of the most uh, perhaps uh, the devices of greatest media interest, maybe greatest patient interest and so forth, you know, these seemingly uh, sexy uh, robots and so forth. I mean, it, it's not, uh, you know, it's not all wine and roses and so forth. And, uh, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily reflect the core of what we're doing in, in rehabilitation. It seems to be the flashiest thing that's out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think too when we were working with the the people that had used the the robots as well as those who knew about it but didn't really use them in the past, um, got some really interesting feedback as to why they wouldn't want to use it and mm-hmm. um, some of the um, restrictions that you have. I mean, you if you have the robot, you have two things in your hand to keep you walking using the robot. That means you can't use your hands for anything else. And that was one thing I think we heard about for the future might be helpful for the manufacturer to think about ways in which they could utilize this robot without having to use both their hands because then there's nothing else that they can do with their hands. So, And of course, a lot of people imagine the robot, the exoskeleton as something that's going to enable, you know, community independence and, you know, walking across that street in time and so forth. And, in certain rare circumstances, but perhaps, but, but a lot of, a lot of this study reflects the uh, increasingly common use of these as therapy tools, um, you know, something that's not necessarily about your your daily r- routine uh, necessarily, uh, but about uh, enhancing uh, the residual motor and neurological function that you do have. Exactly. And and it, it seems to be a, a great tool for the clinicians in terms of decreasing their burden in terms of helping the the person with a spinal cord injury to do walking or to do other activities, because normally without a robot, you would need several therapists in order to help move mm-hmm. the, the patient's legs and to be able to do the kinds of exercises that need to be done. So the robot does actually give a lot of uh, help in terms of decreasing burden. But you're right, it's um, it's difficult to think about using it out in the community. It's not a an item that someone just takes home and there you go, you have it. It's They have to have someone who's at home that's trained in using the equipment, um, someone that will be with them when their equipment, if they were to fall or to have other issues while wearing the equipment. So um, it hasn't moved into general use, I think, in the out uh, in the community. Um, but again, those are things to think about based on uh, these data, what would be most helpful for persons with spinal cord injury and, and how could they utilize this equipment in another space? What do y'all learn about the, the cost barriers to this study? So the, equi- the equipment is very costly. Um, it is available uh, for veterans um, more readily than the, the regular population, the civilians. But in terms of um, there are some insurances that will help cover, some that do not cover. Um, but it is a very costly piece of equipment. Um, so there has to be a lot of motivation on the part of the individual who will be wearing the robot to want to continue to use it and um, and there are people that do use it and um, find a lot of benefit to it, but um, then you have to look at the cost versus the benefit. Sure. sure. 
What was the what was the most surprising thing that you learned? Uh, and Gerald, I know you, you admitted at the beginning you're a bit of a of a, of a novice with, with regards to uh, this uh, this type of technology. Um, but from uh, and I but obviously you work in the rehabilitation environment. You're you're familiar with them to some to some extent. But what, what would you say is probably a little bit unexpected uh, thing that you learned? Well, I think the one thing that stood out to me with this particular group was that. Um, it's not necessarily a device. The, the exoskeleton is not necessarily a device that helps people walk. I mean, it helps people maybe move around better, transfer better, uh, maybe stand better, but not necessarily only for walking. And um, that to me sort of put another highlight on, you know, obviously the, the different types of activities you could use with a robot, which I just thought, you know, mm-hmm. is there for walking. And so... Um, and then also thinking about what are what are the costs to this and in terms of the, the training that needs to be involved for the, the patient and their caregiver, um, what all it's uh, helpful in terms of the burden for the therapist. Um, so there were a lot of things, I think, that were really helpful um, learning from the from the clinicians in this study. Do you think that this study will, will be looked at by industry? Uh, it seems like a font of information here. I would ho- I would hope so. I'm sure you hope so, too. I hope so too, and we we do have um, publications on the two other aspects of the the people with uh, spinal cord injury that do use the um, or have used the exoskeleton, as well as those who do not. So hopefully, with between those three um, manuscripts, that that will have some impact on the industry in terms of what we we asked about what would be the, some of the benefits, what would be some of the things you would ref, uh, sort of recommend to the manufacturer. So. We're hoping mm-hmm. that that gets out there and um, things will continue to evolve over time. Yeah, obviously you mentioned the fact that uh, you know donning and doffing these these devices is requiring another person and so forth will be uh, that alone would be a fantastic uh, uh, advancement if they can be minimized to the extent that the patient can can handle that on their own. Dr. Early Jones, I, I I thank you for uh, for the discussing this uh, this study with us. I think there's there's obviously a lot more information in here for the uh, interested reader, and hopefully your your interest has been piqued uh, by this taste and in, in the podcast um, uh, exoskeletons as we've discussed. Um, uh, or a highlight of rehabilitation technology, they are destined to become more practical and more useful, I feel, and hopefully studies like this will help guide that direction in further uh, development. Uh, not a panacea, nothing is, um, uh, but uh, a very interesting work here, and, and I thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. now on the rehab cast is Dr. John White. Uh, Dr. White will no doubt be familiar to many of our listeners as someone who has uh, appeared with great frequency in the pages of the archives of physical medicine and rehabilitation uh, as well I was as I would venture to say or dare to say most rehabilitation journals. Uh, is a long and storied career in uh, brain injury uh, medicine and various other areas in uh, the rehabilitation field. Dr. White is founding director of the Moss Rehabilitation Research Institute, where he uh, continues to serve as Institute Scientist Emeritus. Dr. White, thank you for joining us. I'm glad to be here. So the particular paper that you're joining us on, the rehab cast today, uh, concerns what uh, I, I think we're going to agree through this discussion is uh, a much needed matter in brain injury medicine, uh, a way to uh, properly 
measure functional changes and outcomes for a wide variety of needs in this population. Uh, for our audience, the title of this paper is the Brain Injury Functional Outcome Measure, bi FOM. It is a single instrument capturing the range of recovery in moderate to severe traumatic brain injury. It has an illustrious team of uh, co-authors, including not only Dr. White, but also Dr. Giacino and Dr. Heinemann, editor of the journal, uh, Dr. Bodian, and, and many other names, including Mark Shearer, that uh, our uh, audience will recommend, some of whom uh, have appeared on this podcast before. Uh, Dr. White, I uh, look forward to delving into this, this study uh, with you. Let's uh, uh, begin at the beginning to, to some extent. Uh, as, I, as I presaged our audience a little bit, um, uh, you, you have a, a long career in uh, rehabilitation uh, research and um, uh, rash analysis, which we're going to discuss some uh, as well, uh, really helping this field of medicine uh, prove what it does and improve uh, what it does. Uh, with statistical rigor, uh, and this is uh, part of uh, this this process uh, as well. Uh, I imagine this is a need you have seen for some time. Yes, that's true. Um, uh, listeners will be familiar with FIM probably as the the most frequently used uh, functional outcome measure in in uh, in many areas of rehabilitation, including in in moderate and severe brain injury, and uh, the benefits of that to being able to measure uh, differences in severity between one person and another, and and change in re uh, during recovery or during rehabilitation. Um, but uh, what we what we knew from the traumatic brain injury model system and from many other research experiences was that uh, when patients come into inpatient rehab, uh, a large share of them have the lowest possible score in FIM, but they're not all the same. And when we do year one-year follow-up to see how people are doing, even some of the people who have the lowest possible FIM score now have the highest possible FIM score at follow-up. Um, so, the problem this causes in, in our study and in, in many other studies is that if you want to include uh, moderate and severe patients from early after injury when they can do little to nothing, and you want to also be able to measure variations in how well they do a long time after or after some uh, neuroprotective treatment or almost any kind of major intervention, you, you run out of a ruler. You, you run off the mm. edge of your measurement tool and you either think everyone turned out the same when they maybe didn't, or you think they all started the same when they maybe didn't, and you lose a lot of precision at both points. And so, uh, so over time, people have had various workarounds, like don't study people too long, and then they won't change <laughs> enough to fall off the end of your measurement tool, or uh, or only study people who are not recovering too fast, or only study people in a narrow severity band, or, or uh, and then you pick an instrument to use that works for that very specific population, but but you're still quite uh, constrained. Part of the broader context, I mean, patients know when they're improving, families know when, the, when they're improving. We, we generally know to some extent as clinicians one-on-one -on -one with patients, we see the fruits of our labors and so forth. But that's all very different than attempting to test out a new rehabilitative treatment. And it's all certainly very different than what uh, payers are going to be looking at as well. 
Right. If we, you're, you're right that we can often uh, qualitatively describe what's changed over the course of a year, but, but for research purposes, we need to be able to analyze things quantitatively with some sort of numerical score. Um, and, and similarly, payers want something more rigorous than, than clinical anecdotes. Um, so, you know, there are some measures uh, people will be familiar probably with the Glasgow Outcome Scale or Glasgow Outcome Scale Extended, those do cover the full range of, of severity from uh, unconsciousness to, to normal outcome, but normal recovery, but, but they cover them in you know, five or eight steps. So you have to make a huge amount of change in order to get one more point in, in one of those systems. Uh, uh, and, and in addition, they're not what we refer to statistically as interval scales. In other words, uh, we know that uh, a good outcome is better than a bad outcome, but we don't know how it's not twice as good or three times as mm -hmm. good in any meaningful sense. So that really limits the statistical procedures we can use to analyze the data. So, so the FIM has good properties on the precision and, and interval side. In other words, we can, we can, manipulate it like a numerical value over the range that it, it works. Um, and it shows fairly small changes in that range, uh, but it's just too short uh, to do the job yeah. for the full set of questions we have. It has a lot of that, that uh, ceiling effect as well, correct? Ceiling and floor, right. Are the two, uh, when, when, when a lot of people, I, in, ideally in any measurement tool, you want pretty much nobody to get the minimum or maximum score. Mm -hmm. uh, that would be the ideal property of your, your measurement tool. Well, let's talk a little bit about the the challenge of of launching into this. Obviously, you got you got a diverse team here, but a lot of names that folks are going to recognize from the rehabilitation uh, literature. Um, uh, uh, how did you get this uh, this group together uh, to begin with? And what were some of the different ideas about the the approach to how you would go about developing the the BI FOM? Well, this was a project. Uh, within the Traumatic Brain Injury Model System program that's funded by the National Institute on Disability and Independent Living and Rehabilitation Research. So um, a, a subgroup of the 16 centers that are part of the overall TBI model system that had interest in this particular topic uh, collaborated on what we call a module project. Um, and um, the project proceeded in two phases. Uh, our, our, we agreed, you know, all of us in one uh, research endeavor or another had faced this problem. So we all we all knew it was a problem that was uh, that existed and that was getting in all of our way and that we should solve. Um, so then the question was how, and we decided, uh, and what were we seeking to achieve? We wanted to, if you will, extend the bottom end of this yardstick and extend the top end, lengthen the overall measurement so that it would spread out the gradations in the very severe end and spread out the gradations in the very uh, good recovery end, but retain the um, numerical measurement properties that, uh, that characterize FIM and, and other, um, other interval scales like that. Um, so that meant finding items that uh, 
relate to the very minimal things that very severe patients can do. And on the other hand, finding things that uh, reflect what people even better than fully independent on FIM can do. Um, uh, so the, these, when I say lower and higher, implicitly we're acknowledging that there's some dimension under here. In other words, lower on what and higher on what? Well, this dimension is arguably uh, global neurological functioning. So we're talking about, can we measure even worse global neurological functioning than FIM does and even better? Um, so we started by taking, uh, we, we had various ones of us had data sets from previous research in which we had administered FIM and or disability rating scale along with either some measure that was particularly well-suited for very severely impaired patients or some measure that was very well-suited for fairly high-level patients. Um, and, and then we analyzed those joint data sets using uh, a technique called Roche analysis, which we can get into a little bit more uh, later if you want, which basically asks two questions. It asks, do these other items measure the same dimension that the items you're starting with measure. Um, and if they do, where on that yardstick do they lie? Do they lie right amidst the ones that you already have from FIM or do they lie above those items or below those items? So from doing those, um, that preliminary analysis on retrospective data, we were able to identify a bunch of items that seemed to lie on the same dimension of FIM as FIM, and that seemed to be either lower or higher in this sense. But that was all based on retrospective data. So we then, uh, and we didn't take more items that were right in the middle of the FIM items because we didn't really need them to fill in that space. So we then took a set of, um, a uh, larger set of items and uh, administered those prospectively to a bunch of people around the time of inpatient rehab and a bunch of people around one year after, uh, after, uh, after injury, sorry, uh, who were part of our model system data collection cohort and did another wave of this kind of Roche analysis where we were able to eliminate a bunch of items that either didn't fit this dimension very well or didn't help us measurement wise. Um, and, and so that was the approach we took um, to end up with the BI FOM. So portions uh, uh, were delivered uh, or assessed in person, but also some of the follow-up took place over the telephone as well. The entire measure can be done over the telephone. Is that correct? Well, the uh, yes and no. That is the um, there are a few items that sample the most severe gradations of functioning that require clinician examination because they have to do with whether someone um, follows commands or not, which is we don't think that untrained people can reliably make those decisions all the time and so on. Um, the Roche analysis, our statistical technique is very uh, forgiving of missing data. So, hmm. When, a, when someone can do something higher level than follow a command, like if mm -hmm. I'm interviewing you on the phone and you're answering questions, uh, 
-hmm. I don't care whether you can follow a command or not, because we're way above that level of the scale. So it only becomes a problem for people who are at the very low end, most of whom are inpatients when they're being, uh, when you're collecting data. So the people we would, for whom it's a, a total problem are the people who remain vegetative uh, at one year, let's say, who I might not be certain are vegetative or minimally conscious, but I will, I will certainly know that they're at the low end of the scale. So you utilized uh, the other measures uh, as part of the Roche analysis in order to uh, correlate each of the, the new measures. I mean, looking at uh, the, the FEM, the coma recovery scale, and um, uh, and uh, outcome scales, and, and so forth. But is there a direct comparison of saying uh, uh, how how well the new measure does uh, versus those others? Well, it's yeah. It, just to slightly uh, uh, shift what you said, it's not. Okay. It's not that we're comparing these. Uh, we, we are ultimately comparing the performance of the BIFOM uh, to the performance of FIM okay. as a way to, to answer the question of, did we succeed in our goals? But BIFOM has a number of FIM items in it. Uh, so it's, it's when we're saying, what are the properties of the BIFOM? It's what are the properties of the items that were drawn from all these other measures that ended up in this collection that we're now calling BIFOM. Uh, so as you say, some from, came from the coma recovery scale revised, some came from the disability rating scale, some came from some cognitive uh, telephone, cognitive assessment batteries, and so on. And individual items from those other measures end up marking different points on this yardstick. And then we don't use the other, we don't use the whole FIM. We don't use the whole, whatever the cognitive battery was, et cetera, et cetera. We use these specific questions or items. Um, that makes sense. Now that you've, uh, you know, uh, analyzed a, a reasonable number of, uh, of patients, both uh, acutely and post and, and one year follow-up uh, surveys, a total of 184 um, and uh received uh, what looks like uh, quality information about their functional status through the BIFOM, what remains to be done in order to say, you know what, let's go ahead and make this a, a standard going forward? Is there further proof that is required next, or is it, uh, is it time to begin some, some implementation studies? Yes, that's a good question, and and um, there is a little bit more work that we think needs to be done before we want to recommend using this in in research or or in program evaluation or whatever broadly. Um, two two things really need um, need to be done. One is that uh, for anything like this, it's uh, where you select your items based on analysis from one specific set of research participants, you want to make sure that if you now administer that measure to a new set of research participants, it performs as well, or actually probably almost as well, because it almost never performs exactly as well, because some of the wellness of its performance was tailored to the idiosyncrasies of that particular sample and won't be true in the next one. So, so that's kind of what you have to establish to make sure it still looks good with a new sample. Secondly, there are some sort of practical and quasi-legal issues. So as, uh, as listeners probably know, the FIM 
uh, has gone out of existence as a routinely collected um, uh, billing-related uh, entity. So um, we were able for this study to simply retrieve FIM items from the clinical data system. The clinical data system handled training and certifying its its practitioners to know how to do FIM assessment and so on and so forth. So, so we will have to... Uh, modify the items that came from FIM to be uh, interview-based. We, we think that that's doable because we already have a, a FIM-based interview for one-year follow-up that has been validated and works pretty well. Um, it, it's We haven't ever used it to interview clinicians, which is what you'd have to do on the inpatient uh, side. Um, secondly, since these items came from a number of other sources, many of those sources are in the public domain, but some are proprietary. And so there will be the question of uh, getting authorization to uh, take parts, but not all of other measures and incorporate them into this. I see. So. Yeah, those legalistic aspects. Uh, that That is a... A challenge uh, in this world, and then uh, the implementation of getting someone like uh, uh, CMS to uh, in- encourage its use and uh, and so forth. Um, do you have any insight into um, the move from CMS away from uh, the film and and how that uh, decision occurred? Since since we're talking about it, um, well, uh, I, I'm not an expert on this. Mm-hmm. The the uh, I, I think. You have to distinguish whether uh, a measure is being used as an outcome measure or, uh, if you will, as a case mix severity indicator. In other words, mm-hmm. am, am, am I wanting to know how well you did or am I well, I'm wanting to know how, uh, how challenging it is to care for you and, and how much help you need? Um, and uh, many of these measures serve both purposes to some degree. Um, we often use FIM at admission as a, a, a severity indicator of who's coming in the door, right? But we also use it as an outcome measure to say how well did the person recover. So uh, I think CMS, because they're about payment, prioritizes the use as a case mix indicator. And they were able to convince themselves that a smaller set of items and, and actually items that fall more on the motor and self-care side, not as heavily on the co- cognitive side, um, would do the job for them. Um, mm-hmm. So um, I don't think they were expecting to be mandating an instrument that would help us figure out the efficacy and effectiveness of rehabilitation services necessarily. Sure, Yeah. Uh, and of course, the challenge is that uh, we can certainly go above and beyond what, what Medicare or other payers uh, require, and um, it's up to uh, you know perhaps organizations like CARF and ACRM and so forth, uh, other certifying bodies to to encourage that uh, as kind of a, a standard. And um, but uh, but yeah, always interested in the advocacy angles with regards to uh, the quality of care research that's yeah. being done in the yeah. journal. An important piece, obviously, as you state, uh, more work does remain to be done uh, a bit um, uh, still on uh, the prove it angle but it looks like uh, that that should come in, in the in the near term and again this is a, a desperately needed 
change. Uh, we're, we're all too familiar with, uh, uh, with uh, the, these uh, measures such as the FEM not, not reflecting uh, the week-by-week changes that we're seeing or month-by-month uh, in, our, in our patient population. So, And, and I, don't, I, I don't know that I think that the, the biggest impact, frankly, will not necessarily be in clinical monitoring because whether it will mm. be practical to administer this it's not a t- terribly time-consuming, but it's not something you can rate in five minutes. So, um, sure. I think what this will be most useful for, at least initially, is, for example, in neuroprotection trials that are currently using good outcome, bad outcome dichotomy to measure the impact of whatever early intervention, this allows them to enroll the full sample of severity and measure their outcome with a uh, numerically graded measure as opposed to good, bad, um, and similarly for all kinds of other uh, research studies where we're wanting to quantify the impact of outcome over either some decent period of time or a wide spectrum of severity. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Uh, it has been uh, painful over the years. I mean, uh, amazing quality uh, science uh, being done Uh basic neuroscience, advanced neurosurgery, implants, and so forth. And then the, the functional outcome is like, well, you got, you know, yeah, four or five ordinal points. It's like, well, well, dang, I'm not really sure what this does. So, right. yeah. Okay. Well, uh, thank you for uh, spending the time with us, uh, Dr. White, explaining uh, this important work that you and your team have done. Uh, obviously, encourage the listeners of the podcast to delve into the pages of the journal for the article and the supplements as well. And uh, uh, hopefully this has been an enlightening uh, interview for you all. It certainly has for me. Uh, Thank you for your time. Pleasure. And that does it for the April 2021 Rehab Cast from your favorite rehabilitation medicine journal. Be sure to circulate the podcast to your colleagues. Remember, every like and share increases the size of Atlanta's media market. All right, enough, I know. (laughs) Please tune in next month.